0: Lord, we are grateful for today. We are grateful for all the the blessings just to be here today, to be in good enough health that we could walk in the door, that we could learn about you, that we could worship together a little bit later in our service. We are grateful for the men and women of church history, those who've gone before us, those who have died for the faith. Uh, We think of Ridley and and Latimer just this last week. Um, All those hundreds of years ago, they died. For the faith. And Lord, let us be encouraged by that. Let us want to serve Christ more and more. And let us remember those who've gone before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, history of heresy. We've covered everything up to the fourth century Arianism. And so I've got to think of a hard question to do this book giveaway. We have a book here donated by Brenton Frase, our seminary student. I guess Brenton bought two copies for his class at Master's Seminary, and he got an extra one to give away here. So, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power, Volume 4. This was a great set. Uh, they changed to this book right after I went through the class, but I do enjoy this. I read this before seminary even. Uh, volume 4 is The Age of Religious Conflict. So this is what they use at the Master's Seminary. They go through all four volumes, but it's at a very readable level. It's, it's a college, I think, level. And it covers each key person in church history. This is 16th to 18th century. So for the question, just raise your hand if you know the answer. Which heresy in the early church, and Dr. Boosness, you can't answer, okay? Which heresy in the early church taught a lot about light versus dark and wanted to be very ecumenical and incorporate all faiths into it? Chris? Manichaeism. Manichaeism. Chris, you got this book? Nope. You do now. Read it by next week. <laughs> All right. It's only 650 pages, okay? To know my heresies. Yes, <laughs> know your heresies. That is a great book. We have it in the bookstore. Usually we have a copy in the bookstore if you want to grab one and, and follow along in the class. Now we're not that far along, but there's a volume one that covers early church history. All right, the history of heresy. We're looking at the early heresies of the church. Uh, We're just going to go through them sort of all at once and then go back into the different people in early church history. The major, one of the biggest issues in the early church was the heresy of Arianism. Arianism, called Arianism by the guy who popularized it, the guy who developed it, Arius. Uh, He lived between 256 and 336 and he was a presbyter or an elder And the church in Alexandria. Now we're going to see, maybe even later today if we can get to it, later this class we'll see more and more troubling teachings coming out of Alexandria and Egypt. Remember, Alexandria was a city in the Roman Empire that was known for its scholarship. It had a long Jewish history and a pagan history even there with a library in Alexandria. And the church was, was large there. It was strong. But over time we're going to see some teachings that come from there that are quite challenging to the truth of Scripture. Uh, he denied the deity of Christ. This is the major issue with Arianism. There's a lot of smaller things that we can look at, but the major issue is he denied the deity of Christ. His teaching was that before the incarnation, as the Logos, uh, Jesus was not God, but the first and greatest created of beings. So that's a problem. He's the... If he's the first created of beings, he can't be God. And so, Arianism was denying the Trinity. Saying that the Son is not equal to the Father. And the way he did this was saying that Christ was not the same substance. Homoousia in Greek. But of similar substance. Just a small letter. It's it's one letter in the Greek. You can see it there. It's an I transliterated, but it's an iota in the Greek. It's not the same, but it's similar. And you can see how Christians who aren't taught well might fall into this trap. They might fall into this trap of, well, he's still acknowledging that Jesus the Christ is similar to God the Father. And so more and more people in the Roman Empire began to follow this. And even some of the emperors in this part in history, some of the emperors of the Roman Empire that were Christian were allowing this to grow and and even... um, being Arian in their belief themselves. So are there any Arians today? Are there any Arians that, that wouldn't go by this name, but they hold to this view, they deny the deity of Christ? What was it? Mormons? Mormons, yeah, I, I think they're kind of a combination of a lot of these heresies. Uh, Gnosticism especially. But there's one that's even and more particularly, they're pretty much modern day Arians. Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah, the guys who knock on your door that you need to evangelize. They often uh, don't want to talk about the deity of Christ if you bring it up, but I remember in seminary, uh, one of the professors said, just go to that verse in John, John 20, where Thomas says, I don't believe it until you show me. Then he shows up and he says, you know, here, Jesus says, here's the, the wound in my side. Put your hands here, feel it. And what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. Well, in their translation of the Bible, the New World Translation, it says, My Lord and my God. So a good way to talk to them if they're open to it, often they're not, is just to go to that passage and say, Why does he say, My Lord and my God? And sort of point to the fact that even the early uh, Christians were calling Jesus God. They believe that. That's pretty much the major area today. Now, Arianism, and we'll touch on it later as we go through some of the persecutions and and some of the men in church history, but Arianism becomes the predominant view in the Roman Empire because the government is holding that view. And they'll even send men away who are writing against it, um, like Athanasius, into exile. So, this just goes to show you that even heresies can catch hold and become very popular and work their way into the church. Another heresy is Nestorianism. Nestorianism came about in the fourth century named after Nestorius. And Nestorius was the patriarch of Constantinople. So Constantinople becomes the capital of the Roman Empire built by Constantine and his sons rule there and, and so on after him. It's very Greek in its beginning. It stays Greek whereas the west is more Latinized. And he's the patriarch. He's what you might call the pope today of Constantinople. Of course we don't Hold to this idea of Pope or Patriarch, but just say he's the, he's the Archbishop of Constantinople. He's the highest pastor of Constantinople. Nestorianism believed that in the Incarnation, Christ not only had two distinct natures, but was also two distinct persons. A divine son of God indwelling a human son of Mary. So you stick two people together is the easiest way to think about what he was teaching here. There's two completely different people. Now we believe that Christ is one person and he has two distinct natures. That's biblical teaching. He is fully divine, fully human, and the one person, Jesus Christ. But here Nestorianism is teaching two distinct persons. And some say Nestorius didn't really teach this, but it was actually his followers. can't always know for sure. Some of the early documents get destroyed and and get lost over time. Later, this moves east into the Church of Persia, and many other Eastern Christian sects today are even strongly Nestorian. So here's from Grudem's Systematic Theology, just showing a graphical representation of what Nestorian looks like. There's two people in the box. So there's two, we might say, two Jesuses. Two, there's, a, there's a human and a divine stuck together. This goes against what the Bible teaches. And we're going to see not just Arianism, but other heresies in the early church dealing with who is Christ? How do we deal with the Trinity? Where is the teaching in the Bible on the Trinity? We know that it's there. If you've been a Christian long, you've studied those passages, you've read the Bible. But the early church was getting all these attacks from outside the faith and from inside the faith. And so they had to correct it. They had to write against it. How are we going to preserve true teaching? Well, we have it in the Bible, but we need men who will preach the truth, men who will teach the truth, men who will train up others who will go out and teach the truth. And Nestorius was one of those men and his followers, and they taught this teaching. That's not the biblical view, just in case you didn't know. We went ahead and put that there. I'm not going to blow it up as much as I did uh, Gnosticism, right? Because that's all over today. That was a nuclear bomb that went off, if you remember, in that class. Uh, the, the, one of the main sects of the Nestorians today is the Holy Apostolic Catholic Syrian Church of the East. And that is present in the United States today. Uh, they still hold this idea of two distinct persons. I've met not directly Assyrian Church of the East uh, people, but I've met kinfolk of theirs who say and confirm they do hold this view. But I think it's official if you go to their documents online. A little bit more technical here. Harder to understand. Apollinarianism in the 4th century. Named after, of course, the leader Apollinarius. He was the bishop, or we might say the, the senior pastor of Laodicea. Laodicea, the same one mentioned in the Bible. He was there from 361 to 390. And what he taught was that in the incarnation, the Son of God did not have a human mind. His infinite divine mind took the place of a finite human mind. What's the problem with that? If you you don't have a human mind, then you're not, what? Fully human. It's zapped, you know, sort of zapped out and replaced with the divine mind. And he was thus a divine mind dwelling in a human body. So this is Grudem's uh, attempt to represent that. It's a little bit hard sometimes for us to conceptualize. But the problem is, it's, it's denying the two distinct natures in one person. Now we're moving along into the 5th century. We have Eutychianism. Eutychianism, named after Eutyches, an extreme Alexandrian. So he, he's got Alexandrian theology. And this, this idea in Alexandria uh, of things developing, and allegorical interpretation, and different errant theology... Uh, develops in the early church and he taught that Christ's human nature was swallowed up and lost in his deity. He said literally it's like a drop of wine in the sea. So pushing down the human nature to almost a level of unimportance. Christ's human nature is just is swallowed up. His deity is so awesome so mighty that it that it swallows up all the humanity. And we're going back to that dualism that we saw the last time we met. And we looked at some of these heresies. A lot of them deal with the the dualistic nature that was inherited by the Greeks. That matter is evil. That all things created are evil and sinful. And how could Christ, how could the Son of God come and dwell in a human body? That was hard for people to conceptualize in the Greek world. And so they diminished the deity, uh, the human nature of Christ. So here we have the human nature, again from, from Grudem's uh, charts here, the human nature and divine nature coming together to make something new, but the human nature is, is pretty much lost. All right, Donatism. Donatism. Northwest Africa, it starts in the 4th to 5th century, named after its originator, Donatus. And this is similar to the Novationists that we covered before. The Donatists disagreed with the mainstream church, over whether or not believers who defected under the persecution of Diocletian should be restored to the church. So one of the last empire-wide persecutions was under the emperor named Diocletian. And what what would happen is if you gave up your friends and you, you bowed to the emperor and you you know um, made an offering to him as your god, even if it was just for a moment and then you repented, that was enough. That was enough for the Roman Empire not to persecute you. And so you saw a lot of Christians, even, even pastors of churches, do this to save their life, to save their skin. Or sometimes it was just to save the Bible. They were burning Bibles and getting rid of Christian writings back then. And the problem is, now what do we do with those who've lapsed? Those who've basically shown themselves to be traitors. They called them traditors, people who had handed over, people who had handed others over and, and their Bibles over and things like that. What do we do with those? And so the Donatists rejected any priests. And we'll talk more about priests and how that word gets used in church history. But right now, just think of it as the leader of the church, the, the pastor. They rejected priests who were more accepting of the spiritual defectors. So the church at large, guys like Augustine and others, they said, okay, if you've repented, if you turn from your sin of that, you're welcome back into the church. And sometimes even pastors could be restored. And the Donatists said, no way. That's not going to happen. You've turned over the Bible to be burned. You've turned in fellow Christians. The Donatists referred to such people as traditors, people who had handed over because of their defection. And so Augustine writes against the Donatists, but the Donatists get pretty violent in northwest Africa. It's almost a little war, a sectional war happening there. Where the Donatists are destroying churches, and, and Augustine's even saying the emperor should come and, and help the church be protected from the Donatists. All right, that's the end of our heresies list. Any questions before we move on? Just to run back through them real quick. We had Ebionism, the first one that we know of. Ebionism, again, denied the deity of Christ. We've got Docetism. Only seemed to be human, they said. Jesus only seemed to be human. And we see something like that in, even in the book, the Quran. It appeared as if they slew him. He didn't really die. Uh, Gnosticism, which has infected so much of Christianity, uh, so much of Roman Catholicism too. Um, all this idea of the supreme being, the demiurge. urge. Remember the crazy stories that we went through here, what they believed. And of course, some, somebody mentioned Mormons. Who was that earlier? Yeah, they. I think they fit really with the Gnostics. But they would fulfill many of these categories that we're talking about. Of course, all these books today. If you weren't here, I'm showing you this now so you can stay away from these. The Jesus Calling, The Secret, Sacred Enneagram, The Power of Now. So just, this is where I, you know, just, just don't read it. You have the Bible, you have good. If you need something to read, we have plenty that will last you a long time in the bookstore. Uh, read your Bible, of course, but... You don't need to read this silly stuff. Marcionism. What was the problem with Martianism? Who remembers? He pretty much cut out all Jewishness to the Bible, which means the whole Old Testament, most of the New Testament. And we still see this affecting the church today, where the church doesn't want to read, study, or preach the Old Testament. Oh, by the way, uh, guys like Andy Stanley who said we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. So even though they're not full-on marchionists, this idea that we need to sort of get rid of the Old Testament and forget about it as Christians is still around today. Monarchianism. We looked at adoptionism. Uh, Bart Ehrman, in his books, he's saying Jesus became God. Jesus got adopted by the Father. And then the second monarchianism is modalism. And I took you through um, bad uses of the Trinity, United Pentecostal Church, T.D. Jakes, is probably the most famous modalist today. And uh, the the song, the band that everybody loves, was that the 90s? Phillips, Craig, and D? 90s? And then 2000s? Uh, they originated, I think, from Austin. I think one of them is a, maybe a pastor at a, at a Pentecostal church. Now, when more people begin to understand what they believe, they they drop some of these things from their website. Even T.D. Jakes, over time, has... Uh, reworked some of his doctrinal statements to sound a little closer to biblical teaching. But he still affirms that he uh, believes in manifestations, not persons. And So I walked you through a lot of that and what happened at uh, the elephant room, number two. And just quoted, you've got to be careful when people say manifestations. Ask them questions. Do you, do, you, do you believe in three persons, one God? Try to get clarity before you start accusing them of being a a modalist. But it may be that they believe that if they were raised maybe in the Pentecostal, oneness Pentecostal church. Montanism, and then we picked up uh, with Novationism, very similar to the Donatists. Manichaeism, light versus dark, right? We see that today, don't we? Some of y'all's favorite movies, Chris? Not your favorite. Some Some of my teenagers love Star Wars, and I have to show them, you know. Dark side versus light side. That's Manichaeism. And then we started with Arianism. Any questions on those before we move along? Comments? All right, y'all are quiet today. By the way, Autumn's doing well. Had a little pain this morning. Trying to get up and move around. Probably too much. She needs to move around, but she probably moved around too much this morning. She had to... Really bite her tongue just sitting there while everybody's getting ready and all the kids are getting ready. She's normally used to being very busy on Sunday morning. Contending for the faith. So we're moving along now to the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Uh, We want to look at this idea of who were these early men in the 2nd and 3rd centuries that were known as apologists, polemicists. I'll define what those terms mean. And, And guys we can't put into either one of those groups. We'll just call theologians. So there's a couple of them. So we're moving through church history now. And sometimes we'll stop like we did and deal with heresies or or other theological controversies. It's not just the history of the church, but also the historical theology. What's happening in theological debates. So what is an apologist? An apologist is somebody who offers an argument in defense of the Christian faith. And, And usually this person is defending the faith against unbelievers. Today, sometimes it's hard to tell who's an unbeliever and a believer. You have a lot of bad beliefs in Christianity. So sometimes an apologist is even defending what the Bible teaches to so-called believers. But at this time, most of the attacks were coming from outside the church, not inside the church. Other than heresies like Arianism and others. But the Greco-Roman Empire was challenging Christians. They were persecuting them. They were killing them. And so the apologists were giving a defense. Why do we believe what we believe? Now a polemicist is more the offensive. Apologist is defensive. Polemics is offensive in the sense that they're offering arguments to undermine another person's beliefs. False beliefs that they have. They're either correcting or rebuking people inside the church or demolishing arguments. That's a phrase from Paul. Demolishing arguments in the world. Other religions, other philosophies. So early on we're going to see apologists defending against the faith. But as As more and more Christians began to engage with the Greco-Roman beliefs and writing, they're almost more polemical. They're going on the offense and saying that not only here's what we believe, but what you believe doesn't make sense. It's not true. So who are these second century apologists and what did they teach? Well, they defended Christianity against common misrepresentations and the accusations of philosophers. Philosophers were the scholarly people. They were the academics in this time. And if you wanted to learn wisdom, if you wanted to learn how to live a good life, you didn't open these Christians' Bibles, you didn't open Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, you went to the philosopher. You went to guys who had studied Aristotle and Plato, Socrates. And the philosophers of the early first century, second century, third century, fourth century were attacking Christianity in their day to day teachings. To refute the charges, secondly, to refute the charges of idolatry and polytheism while affirming belief in one God. So often, the Greco-Romans would hear, the Greeks, the Romans, anybody in the empire would hear about Christian beliefs. And they would say, oh, you believe in multiple gods too. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's three gods, they would say. And so they charged Christianity with polytheism or, or some kind of idolatry, just like everybody else worshipped. It always makes people feel better if you're like them. If they're in sin and you're like them, if you believe the same as they do, just worship a slightly different God. That makes them feel better. Uh, Number three, to present the Christian faith in a language and in concepts accessible to educated people. Christianity can speak to the most educated and the least educated. Early church is a lot of... uh, There's a lot of slaves in the early church. It's not very popular with the most wealthy, most powerful people. Now, there are some that are saved in the book of Acts, for example. There are some saved in early church history that have wealth, that have money, that have power. But it's not extremely popular because it's going to teach you that you should humble yourself before God. That you're a slave of Christ. And if there's one thing in this time in history, you don't want to be a slave. You don't want to be bowing down to um, another master. If you have power, if you have money... What is this religion that tells you you're a slave now of someone? Who is this Christ? And I even mentioned in the sermon last week as we started Romans that there's this debate in Rome, remember, over Christos, which is probably about Jesus. The Jews were fighting. You had the Jews who didn't believe in Christ and the Jews who did believe in Christ. And the emperor got so tired of hearing about them that he kicked them out, the emperor Claudius. And again, that's probably because they don't understand what the debate's even about. And to get rid of them, they just kicked them out of Rome. So, I don't know if you can read this because it's a little bit smaller. But what did they do? They tried to make a philosophical case for Christianity. And that's not always good. It's not always good to use philosophical language. It it can be done carefully if you use some of the similar same terms. But it's very um, dangerous at times to try to make Christianity uh, sound good to philosophers. They appealed to the emperors. So the apologists would write letters hoping that the emperors would read them. Or books that the emperors would read. And they were encouraging them to stop persecuting Christians unjustly. So they gave a defense against accusations. What are these accusations? That Christians were atheists. You remember we studied uh, Polycarp. And what was the accusation against Polycarp? That he was an atheist. That he believed in none of the Roman gods, none of the Greek gods, none of the traditional gods of the day. So he denied them. He was atheist without a god to worship. And so the apologists were saying that's not true. We worship the one true God, the creator of all things. Also, they wanted to defend against this accusation that Christians were sexually immoral. Because early historical writings that we even have today show that people didn't understand what was going on with the Lord's Supper. The church would stay after their worship service and have a meal and they called this the love feast. Even Paul speaks in that kind of language in 1 Corinthians. And so they thought, oh, love feast. We know what that is. And the Greco-Roman empire that you know, that's sexual immorality, that's orgies, that's all of this drunkenness, carousing. And so even though the Bible clearly teaches against that, they're not getting out their Bible and reading cover to cover. They're just hearing love feasts and translating it into their own um, language. Three, cannibals. Christians must be cannibals because they're taking the blood and eating the flesh of their God. And their God was said to be a man, so this is cannibalism. And, and even as bad as the pagans often were, they would put their kids out to, to die. If the kid had anything wrong, they would expose the child. Um, some pagans even worshipped uh, gods that, wanted them to sacrifice their children. One thing they detested, the Greeks and the Romans, was cannibalism. And so this gave reason sometimes for people to persecute Christians. And and then the fourth one is insurrectionists. Christians were supposedly refusing to worship the emperor so they could start their own government, appoint their own leader. That was the misunderstanding. And that's how closely religion was tied with the government. It's only in modern times that we've separated that. Up until, really, the founding of America, in most countries, you had a national religion. And the national religion at this time for Rome was worship of the emperor and any other gods that you wanted to add in your worship. But you at least needed to pray for the emperor as a god and offer some sort of incense or a sacrifice for him. So the first one, the earliest one, the earliest apologist is Justin Martyr. Now, that's not his last name, what, what does that mean, martyr? Why is he called Justin Martyr? Take a guess. Witness, right? And, and in the early church, witnesses were killed for the faith. So to be martyred meant that you profess Christ, that you often were well-known sometimes for doing that, as Justin Martyr was, and he would eventually be put to death for it. Uh, he's also known as Justin of, of Caesarea, where he's from, where he was, but... Uh, we, we know him today as Justin Martyr. He's considered the most important of the second century apologists. And a large number of his writings have survived today. He's born in Judea. That's Caesarea in Judea, but it's to pagan parents. So pagans lived throughout Judea in this time. He studied philosophy and then later converted to Christianity. After his conversion, he became a defender of the faith which he said was the true philosophy. So he's trying to take what he knew from the past, and now he's been converted, and he wants to go back and and really think of it as evangelizing his people, evangelizing the academics of the day. And so he refers to this as a true philosophy. He writes, I fell in love with the prophets and these men who had loved Christ. I reflected on all their words and found that this philosophy alone was true and profitable. One of his primary philosophical arguments was to use the concept of the Logos, which was widely known in Roman culture as a way to point to Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So the Greeks and then the Romans just absorbed all that the Greeks believed. The Greeks believed in the Logos. This, this one identifying concept that would sort of be the supreme thing. And John, in John 1, uses the word Logos to speak of Jesus. But there it's more the sense of the word. Logos is just Greek for the word. Or many other uses in Greek for logos as well. Justin said, well, I can make this connection with what they believe and what's taught in the Bible. And and talk about logos. And they're familiar with that term. So he wrote a few works. The first and second Apology. And here he's writing directly to the emperor. He's writing to the emperor. He's writing to the senate in Rome. And he's giving them uh, a fair-minded, he's writing to a fair-minded, educated man. He's talking about the injustice of persecuting the Christians. And he's saying, look, you people of Rome, emperor, you're wise, you're educated. The senate, you're educated in philosophy. Well, let me tell you about the true philosophy. So he's writing a defense. That's why it's called an apology. Also, he wrote this work called the Dialogue with Trifo. A dialogue is a discussion back and forth. almost You can think of it as a debate back and forth. And Justin's arguing from Scripture that Jesus is the Messiah and that Christians are the true people of God. Justin's debate with Trifo is very notable because it's it's cordial. It's not, uh, let me kill you for your beliefs. Let me persecute you. It's a discussion back and forth with this Jewish man, Trifo, uh, trying to convince him he is in this work that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been looking for. He wrote some other things on the resurrection, but we only have fragments. He wrote against Marcion. Uh, That's often how we know what some of these heretics taught, is by reading the good guys and what they wrote. So he wrote against Marcion. He also wrote a work that's been lost against all heresies. It just sounds like a great book. It'd be fun to read, right? Against all heresies. I don't even see how he wrote against all heresies. It would be a huge book back then. And today, imagine, against all heresies. He would have had 10 volumes, right? 10 volumes, 12, more than that. He was killed in Rome around 165 during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, which is it's kind of ironic because Marcus Aurelius is known as the philosopher emperor, the philosopher king. He wrote books on philosophy that are still studied and read today. So he saw himself as a great philosopher, but he ends up killing the guy, the Christian, who said Christianity is the true philosophy. Uh, Supposedly, Justin was asked to recant, and he said no one who is rightly minded turns from true belief to false. Why would I turn away from what's true to something that's false? So let's look at a few quotes. Some of these uh, might sound a little dry to you, but remember this this is translated into English. And in that day... They didn't have a lot of Christian books floating around. So someone someone like this would be read by people who could read and get access to it. And uh, I'm sure in, in Greek it sounds wonderful, exciting. Even in English it's not terrible. So regarding early Christian worship, this tells us what was going on in the second century here. On the day called Sunday, there's a gathering together in the same place of all who live in a given city or rural district. The memoirs of the Apostles. Or the writings of the prophets are read, as long as time permits. Then when the reader ceases, the president, or we could say pastor, in a discourse admonishes and urges the imitation of these good things. Next, we all rise together and send up prayers. So what day do they meet? Sunday. Why do we meet on Sunday? Well, there's an indication already in the New Testament that that's when Christians met. But we see that carried out throughout all of church history. It's the Lord's day. It's the day that he was raised from the dead. So that's the day we gather for worship. They're reading scripture. Isn't that what we do today? When you think about the elements of worship, Paul says that you're to give attention to the public reading of the word. Then he says, preach the word. Then he says, admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then we're told to pray. Four elements we need to have in worship. So what do we see in the early church? They're reading, they're praying, and The pastor is admonishing them and urging them to follow what the thing they read, the Bible, says. So that's what? A sermon. And he says, when we cease from prayer, bread is presented in wine and water. The president, the pastor, in the same manner, sends up prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability. And the people sing out their assent. So now we have singing, knowing, and the Lord's Supper. A distribution and participation of the elements for which thanks have been given is made to each person. Those who are not present, they are sent by the deacons. Then continuing here, those who have means and are willing, each according to his own choice, give what he wills. So there's giving happening in the worship as well as they gather together. What is collected is deposited with the president, the pastor. He provides for the orphans, the widows. Those who are in need are on account of sickness or some other cause. Those who are in bonds, strangers who are sojourning. In a word, he becomes the protector of all who are in need. I don't know where the deacons were at this time in his church, but it's always like the pastors doing the distribution here to the orphans and widows. But Sunday is the day, Justin says, so he's talking to the the Senate and the Emperor describing Christianity. Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly. Because it is the first day on which God, having brought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day, rose from the dead. So why do Christians worship on Sunday and not Saturday? Well, one reason we're not Jewish. We we don't follow the Sabbath day law. But another reason here is because that's what Christians have always done. And they did it because that's the day Christ was raised. For he was crucified on the day before that of Saturn what we call Saturday. And so there's this debate. When I preached through Luke, I talked about how there's this debate on when, when did Jesus die? When was he crucified? According to Justin, it was on Friday. And the day after Saturn, Saturday, is the day of the sun, Sunday. This is where we get the names for our days of the week here, or most of them. Uh, having appeared to his apostles and disciples, he taught them these things which we have submitted to you also for your consideration. So he's just teaching on Saturday. What Christianity is all about. This this same sort of rote, basic stuff for us, but remember they're being killed for often a misrepresentation of what they believe, and so he's trying to make it very clear that this is what Christians are all about. Regarding the distinction between God and the Father, uh, God the Father and God the Son, he says, uh, reverting to the Scriptures, I shall endeavor to persuade you that he who is said to have appeared to Abraham, to Jacob, to Moses, who is called God is distinct from him who made all things. So he's just saying, look, even in the Old Testament, we see many hints of the Trinity here. And he's saying numerically, I mean. Not distinct in will. The Father and Son are the same in will, but they're separate persons, we would say today. Now this idea this, this idea of the Trinity is in Scripture. The term Trinity doesn't come until a little bit later in church history. So he's struggling with this idea of how do I describe this To a Jewish person. How did I describe this idea of the Trinity even found in the Old Testament? Um, The Old Testament being the angel, being Christ. The Old Testament angel of the Lord being Christ. So there's a long held tradition that every time the Old Testament speaks of the angel of the Lord. The angel of Yahweh. That's the pre-incarnate Christ. And so Justin says, even so here the scripture. And announcing that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. And then afterwards, declaring him to be Lord and God speaks of the same one whom it declares by the many testimonies already quoted to be ministered to God who is above the world, above whom there is no other. And so, I hold this view that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate Christ. Other good and godly men disagree. But it's interesting to see even Justin uh, saying that early on or referring to that. All right, next this one will be a much quicker. Uh, Tatian. Tatian, born in 110, probably died around 172. Tatian's interesting because we have some, some good and some not so good with Tatian. Uh, Tatian was Syrian by birth. So he comes from Syria, and he was a student of Justin Martyr. So like his teacher, he embraced Christianity after he failed to find any truth in the other pagan philosophies. So we have some people in our church that went through Different religions, just looking for truth. They're struggling in their life, struggling with sin. They messed with mysticism, uh, Mormonism, Roman Catholicism. And and they'll just tell you in their testimony how they went from one thing to the other. And ultimately, they get a Bible or they hear the gospel and they come to saving faith. Well, this same scenario happened in the early church here. Uh, We have uh, Tatian, like his teacher, he, he embraced Christianity. He couldn't find any other truth. And so he hears the truth and embraces it. And although he was taught by Justin, it's quite different in, in what he says. His writings reflect uh, much more asceticism. Asceticism is basically denying the things of the world completely. And he had a strong dislike for Greek philosophy and Hellenistic culture. So his conversion was such a radical conversion that he looked back and said, I want nothing to do with that. I want nothing to do with uh, Greek philosophy, Hellenistic culture. Whereas Justin said... I can use my past to reach out to those people. And he was, he was ascetic in the sense that uh, most ascetics today are, the, are similar. Uh, deny uh, many of the good things in life, marriage, food, drink, things like that. He believed that the church of his day did not go far enough. And we'll see this often with strange new teachings is that you have the sense of legalism where, where people say, you know, the church today isn't doing enough in this category. And unlike the reformers, These guys will will go too far the other direction. He says the church is not going far enough and rejecting the influence of society. He was so extreme that after his mentor died, he went back to where he was from, Syria region. And so he left Rome, he goes to Syria, and he begins his own Christian Gnostic sect. Remember we covered Gnosticism. Um, Matter is evil, the body is evil. It's the spiritual That we're looking at. And so that runs into problems with the resurrection, doesn't it? It runs into problems with the fact that we're going to get resurrected bodies. And new heavens, new earth. So his, his sect, his group, was rejected by the orthodox. The rightly believing Christians at the time as heretical. So his followers said, marriage, no, that's adulterous. They condemned eating meat in any form. And they said drinking wine even during the Lord's Supper is not going to happen. So what he wrote was Oratio ad addressed to the Greeks and he attempted to show that paganism is worthless. We could agree with him there. That Christianity, by contrast, is the only reasonable faith. Could agree with him there. Now, another major work, and, and this is important, the Diatessaron. Diatessaron was a harmony of the four New Testament Gospels. A harmony where you, you put the the different pericopes, the different stories of the Gospels together and the teachings. And you try to line them up. And it became the standard for the Syrian churches until the 5th century. Even this ancient uh, painting here shows him composing something, writing something in Greek. The idea is he's laying out these Gospels and trying to line them up. And so that's probably what he's most known for today. That's where I've come across his name, is uh, reading and and thinking about Uh, What was in Tatian's harmony of the four Gospels versus what we have today? And we sort of take this for granted that we have these harmonies of the Gospels. Um, And they're very helpful if you're studying through the Gospel accounts, trying to line these up. Of course, there's some more liberal ones out there that, that reject any kind of idea of one author being God of Scripture. But there are some good ones out there as well. And they didn't have that in the early church. So this man... Went about trying to put that together. Any questions so far? Anybody run across these men that we've already talked about? Not in real life, but in books, writing. Y'all need to read more church history. Read more church history. Whenever we started the bookstore, I said, we've got to have at least one shelf, and now it's grown into two shelves on church history. We need to know more about it. All right, Athenagoras of Athens, very quick on this guy. We don't know much about him. It appears that his writings were relatively well-known and influential in the 2nd century. Only two of his writings have survived apology or embassy for the Christians and a treatise on the resurrection. In his apology, his defense of the faith, he pleads to the emperor for justice on behalf of mistreated Christians. He he pleads that they would not persecute Christians. We need justice. Just, Just hear our case. He refuted the idea that Christians were either cannibals or atheists. And according to another man, later writing, of side, Athenagoras was converted to Christianity after he had read the scriptures in an attempt to refute them. There's some evidence that Athenagoras was a Platonist. He, he studied Plato and believed in the beliefs that Plato taught before he became a Christian. It's interesting to me throughout the history of the church, how many people set out to disprove the Bible. And they go through it and they study it, you know, these atheists very carefully. And what happens is many of them end up being converted from that. Uh, still today. I was just reading in preparations for Romans. I was reading about these two scholars in the, in the uh, 1800s in Britain. And they set out in the late 1800s to disprove Christianity. And one was going to disprove the resurrection. And one was going to disprove Paul. And so they met together to discuss this. And they went their separate ways. They published their books basically affirming Christianity. And met back together. And they were kind of scared to tell each other what they had discovered. They had basically been saved, or at least according to them, they had converted. And it turns out they both had come to that conclusion just by trying to disprove the Bible. The Bible's powerful, and it'll do that. So let's talk about somebody who uh, took the Bible in a little different direction. Clement of Alexandria. We've already studied one Clement. There's a lot of Clements. Who was the other Clement that we studied? Maybe even mentioned in the book of Philippians. You remember Clement of Rome, Clement of Rome, one of the early pastors there in Rome. He may have even known the Apostle Paul. He may be the, the Clement mentioned in Philippians. He was, uh, we would say, a, a good pastor. He had left a couple of letters, or at least one. Second one's debated whether he wrote it, probably not. But first Clement can be read today. Um, Clement of Alexandria, I'm not as big a fan of him, and I'll tell you why. Uh, in the moment. He was born Titus Flavius Clemens. That's a Roman name. He was the head of a Christian training school in Alexandria. He's the teacher of a later guy named Origen. So Origen's going to write a lot in the early church. Origen's going to write a lot that will influence the church, good or bad. And his teacher was this man, Clement of Alexandria. He's a leading proponent of making use of Greek philosophy in an effort to defend Christianity. That's not going to go well for him. He did not see philosophy as contrary to Christianity, but rather as complementary to it. He even asserted a form of Christian Platonism. So you get into the dangerous territory when you try to mix philosophy with Christianity. Man-made human philosophy doesn't work with the teaching of the Bible. Now there are some truths in philosophy. There are th- some things we can affirm that are true, that are just natural revelation, things you can observe in the world. But as far as the attempt to get closer to God, the attempt to be wise, the attempt to somehow save ourselves, it does not work. And the Bible clearly teaches there's only one way, that's through Christ. So he was the second teacher at the Christian Training School of Alexandria. So the seminary there is teaching this interpretation called the allegorical method of biblical interpretation. Allegories. What's an allegory? What's an allegory? I mean, we could, we could describe it different ways, um, more academically. But just think of it as a, a story behind the text. And they even came up with multiple levels of teaching. So let's take the Bible and let's allegorically uh, interpret it. Which means, let's do what we want with it. And you wonder how so many doctrines in Christianity um, get twisted At this time, especially in the Middle Ages, it's due to this idea of allegorical interpretation. In contrast to the literal interpretation, what you see there is what it says. Now let's figure out what it it says. Let's figure out what it means. Let's do exegesis. Let's study the text. Let's not look for something hidden behind it. Let's not look at uh, this text and say, well, that represents uh, one of the jewels on the high priest's robe in the Old Testament. Right? And start inserting all of these things. Or or the Song of Solomon is often interpreted allegorically. And people will say it represents Christ. It's all one continuous book about the Lord Jesus Christ. When if you look at the text, you don't see that. You have to stretch. You have to force it in. So his most well-known books are his exhortation to the Greeks. The Instructor and the Miscellanies. Another surviving work from Clement is a Treatise on Mark. So... Uh, just, a, just a quick note here. In his treatise on Mark, he says, who is the rich man that shall be saved? So this is just telling us that there are uh, rich, rich people, wealthy people in the church at this time. They're starting to be more and more wealthy people. And he's saying, look, riches are not condemned in Scripture, but rather the misuse of such riches. So we'll, we'll come back to allegorical interpretation. I'll do a whole class on allegorical school and Alexandria versus the school in Antioch, which was much more literal. And we'll talk about Chrysostom and some of the guys, early church fathers, who took the Scripture literally, which is what we want to do, and not allegorically. There was a time when it seemed like allegorical interpretation was not as present in the biblical church. Now it's coming back around. It's getting more popular again. Tertullian, Tertullian. Tertullian, there's not too many uh, drawings or paintings of him. Most of these are drawings from the uh, Reformation era or sometimes the Middle Ages. Uh, Tertullian's born in Carthage, North Africa, and uh, modern-day Tunisia, we would say. And he was a lawyer. So we've, we've talked about philosophers who become Christians. Now we have a lawyer here, a lawyer in Rome. And he's one of the most prolific of the early church fathers. In fact, he's what's called the father of the Latin church. Why would he be called the father of the Latin church? Because all the other church fathers before him are mostly Greek. They might be in Rome. They might be Roman citizens, but they're writing in Greek. Their training is in Greek. They're trained in Greek philosophy. He's writing in Latin. He is Latin. And so he's known as the father of the Latin church. Now, the... the, A key thing to know about Tertullian is he used the term trinity. As as far as we can tell, he's the first guy to use the Latin term trinity to describe three persons, one substance. Or what we would say today, three persons, one God. He's the, the guy who inserted that into the Christian vocabulary. He did theology and he said, here's a term that we can use. Now, you won't find the exact word trinity in the Bible. You find the concept. You find the concept in the Bible. The Bible wasn't written in Latin. It was written in the New Testament. It was in Greek. And so the word trinity is not there. It comes later in church history. That's fine. We can use theological terms. We do that all the time to describe the teaching in the Bible. The main thing is that we show people where it's at in the Bible. The verses. We, We exegete the text that prove the trinity. So sometimes people, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, will say, look, the word Trinity is not in your Bible. Well, no, but the verses are all there that describe what we call the Trinity. So it's fine to use theological terms to describe, as long as we can go there and show people where it is. Despite being very highly educated, Tertullian was firmly opposed to any marriage of Greek philosophy and Christian teaching in contrast to Clement of Alexandria. So we're already seeing a division. We're seeing people who say, look, let's use Greek philosophy. Let's use it and sort of bring it into Christianity. And others who are saying, no, that's really a bad idea. And they're very much against it. Uh, He even had this idea, might have been the name of one of his works, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? What does the Greek philosophers in Athens and what they teach have to do with Jerusalem and what the Bible teaches? He also felt the mainstream church had grown too worldly. So he says, like, like many Christians even today, look, the church is too worldly. They have too much wealth. So what's the solution? Join the Montanists who denied much of that. Well, the problem with the Montanists, they were preaching, saying that they were speaking for God. They were prophesying the words of God. And so that's a problem. But he says he went there because of this idea of, of denying um, the worldliness And that was coming into the church. We have 31 of his works today. And there's fragments of other works. About 15 additional works have been lost that we know of. And the reason we know they're lost is because they're mentioned by other authors. Or they're mentioned by him. And then we don't have them today. So they must have been lost throughout church history. Uh, Tertullian's writings, they provide a comprehensive overview of theological discussions. Things like uh, paganism, Judaism, church polity, polemics, and ethics. So later in the Reformation, and we'll talk about this when we get there later, the Reformers are going to point to the early church fathers, and the Roman Catholic Church is going to point to the early church fathers, and they're both going to claim that the early church fathers back up their beliefs. So I'll just let you guess where the early church fathers would have pointed to today, and we'll talk about that more at the Reformation. But there's going to be a debate over all these writings that get passed down throughout the church, Whose writings support the Catholic view? Whose writings support the Reformed view? All right, let's look at some polemicists. So the apologists are defending the faith. Uh, The polemicists are also, we could call them the polemical fathers. They are focused not on defending the faith from um, outside attacks, but the polemical fathers are focused on defending the faith from internal error. Often there's an overlap between these two categories. People will write... Some of both. Two groups of church fathers, the apologists and the polemical fathers, together with the ones we already talked about called the apostolic fathers, make up the anti Nicene fathers. So I know I promised y'all a timeline. Things have been a little crazy lately. Um, But I will get you a timeline uh, that I'll just basically put very simple uh, labels on. We're just looking at three groups here. We're looking at the apostolic fathers, the apologists, And the polemical fathers. Those taken together are what's called today the Antinicene fathers. Why? Anti means before. They come before Nicaea. A big council is going to happen in 325, the Council of Nicaea. These are the ones who came before that. These are the fathers that wrote and taught and, and disseminated their information and attacked errors and defended the faith before the Council of Nicaea. So we're going to consider just two of them. Although much of what Tertullian wrote could be considered polemical. And actually we're out of time. Y'all got to tell me. This is so much fun. I just keep going. We're out of time and all these classes are waiting on me to finish here. Okay, next week we'll start with Irenaeus. Irenaeus. All right, let me pray and we'll be done. Lord, thank you for our time this morning. I I pray that we don't take this just dry information. But that we, we remember some of this. We remember who these men were what they taught, some of the errors and mistakes they made, and the things they did right. And I pray that we might live more faithful lives, lives that are dedicated to Christ, dedicated to Scripture, and the right interpretation of Scripture. We ask that you would bless us in this um, wonderful task of studying your word and applying it to our lives. In the name of Christ, amen.